Hey, hey, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Angle on Producers, the show where we shine a light on producers from all corners of the entertainment industry to understand who they are, what they do, and how they do what they do. As always, I'm your host and fellow producer, Carolina Gropa. Lately, I've been looking for ways to create more space for time and joy in my life and in my work. I shared a fantastic article called How to Have Fun Again in last week's newsletter that deeply resonated with me. And if you're listening, chances are that you too love the work and yearn for balance. If you don't already, please take a moment to go to angleonproducers.com and sign up for the newsletter. I'm sending it every two weeks. In it, you'll receive tips, resources, inspiration, and words of wisdom from people way more impressive than me. So check it out. And of course, if you don't yet, please follow me and the show on Instagram. I'm at Carolina Gropa. The show is at Angle on Producers. And hey, thanks for doing this life thing with me. This episode is brought to you by Synapse. Synapse is an app that streamlines workflows for film and television crews, cast members, and studio employees. What they are building is truly game changer, and I'll be doing a deep dive with them in the upcoming weeks. Follow them at Synapse for more. That's C-I-N-A-P-S-E. And now, on to the episode. Barbara Whitman is a theater producer who made her Broadway debut producing A Raisin in the Sun, starring Sean Combs and Felicia Rashad. An impressive lady, she has won multiple Tony and Drama League awards for producing musicals like Hedwig and the Angry Inch, Fun Home, The Humans, and of course, A Strange Loop, which I was lucky enough to see on Broadway back in August. Um, The show closes in January, so if you are able to get your butt over to New York, I highly recommend seeing this incredible, incredible show. In fact, I was able to stop by Barbara's office earlier the day I actually saw the show and got to see all of her Tonys up close and personal and meet some of the people on her team. In 2021, she established the Barbara Whitman Award at Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation. This award will be given annually to a female, trans, or non-binary early career director. So awesome. Currently, Barbara is producing Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Doug Wright's new play, Goodnight Oscar, starring Sean Hayes. It will open on Broadway in spring of 2023. A native New Yorker, Barbara attended NYU Gallatin School of Individualized Study and received an MFA in theater management and producing from Columbia University. With roots in the theater, it's no surprise she's built a career around this art form. She has a deep passion for story, and especially for outlier stories that maybe live outside your more typical commercial Broadway fare. It was such a delight to have this conversation with her, and I hope you take away as much as I did during our hour together. A few of my takeaways include how the definition of a producer has evolved, the importance of introducing audiences to live theater, and tips on how to get started producing theater. So without further ado, here's Barbara. It was such a pleasure to get to meet you in New York. I think it was last month that I was there. Feels like a lifetime ago, but indeed it was just a month ago. And the way that you came into my life, you know, listeners know that I often kind of will purposely go after specific guests that I want to have on the show for different reasons. And, you know, I had heard of A Strange Loop on Broadway and had read nothing about it, but I was like, I'm going to New York. I have 48 hours in the city. This is the show I'm going to see. And when I was researching it and found you as one of the producers, I was like, now, wait a minute. This lady seems awesome and interesting. I wonder if I could meet her when I'm in New York and maybe have her on the show. 
And lo and behold, that is what happened. And so I got to come to your office, meet you and your associate, Jimmy. And it was such a gift, I, I got to say, to just have that experience meeting you guys and hearing about the behind the scenes of the show, of the making of, the pursuit of the passion that you put into bringing it to life, and then getting to experience it the same day was just like, I don't know, it was a really, really cool experience that I feel lucky that I got to have. So it was fantastic. And I'm excited to have you on. So thank you for taking the time. Well, thank you for uh, inviting me to come on. Yeah, absolutely. So I would love to just start at the beginning, which is where I'd like to start with most of my guests. You know, I know you're a New York native. So take us through your journey to discovering that producing specifically theater was the path for you. Well, I, you know, I grew up in New York, as you said, and I grew up going to theater all the time. And I fell in love with theater even before I saw my first Broadway show. I remember seeing my first Broadway show and saying, oh, yes, this is what I want to do with my life. And I don't know how I knew that. My parents always played us cast albums. I don't, I don't know. I just already knew that I loved theater. First, when I was in high school, I uh, became obsessed with the show Pippin, and I got, managed to get a job working concessions. And so I was spending all my free time in Broadway, in the Broadway theater watching Pippin. And I saw it over and over and over again. And that gave me a really deep understanding of show business, you know, the business that there were people coming, buying tickets to come to see every the, the show every night and understudies would go on and it would change and someone would leave the cast and be replaced. And I just got to see it as, it's just much more of a business. It wasn't just the show you did on that one weekend in high school. And so then when I became a young adult, I became a performer. I toured for a, quite a number of years with, um, mostly musicals, dinner theater, summer stock, national tours. There wasn't a lot of Broadway work at the time. This was late 70s, early 80s. Broadway was having a rough time and the work there was tended to be more dance focused and I was a singer. So I got did get cast for some things that were supposed to come to Broadway, although they didn't come to Broadway, but I never made it to Broadway as a performer. And then I like to say I retired at an early age to have kids. I met my then husband and I wanted to have a family. And the truth is at that time, there wasn't, there were no role models for having family and um, a career. It was very much an either or. And so I got out of the business and, you know, it's, it's a shame that young women really felt that way. But if you wanted to have kids, you were like, well, have to give up the career. So I retired and stayed home with my kids until my youngest went to kindergarten. And then I went to work in my family's business, which was finance. And my dad said, I'll give you a practical MBA. So I worked for a number of years and I, the, my job was to manage investments of high net worth individuals. So then eventually, which really you know paid off eventually when I became a producer, but at a certain point I wanted to go back into theater. I, I realized that shouldn't I be doing what I love? And so I, it was actually right after 9-11 that a lot of people had that same reaction, like, wait, and maybe life isn't as long as we think it is. And so I um, immediately started applying to grad school. I had always looked at this Columbia University program in theater management and producing. I got in and it's not that you need a degree as a producer to be a producer. It was a great way to quit my job. And it was a great way to make the connections in order to build a career. And I did not know I'd be a producer. I ironically, my skill set or my, my age, I was an older student. I couldn't go out on the road with a tour. I couldn't be an apprentice or an intern. Like I just couldn't do any of that. And I had been managing high net worth individuals assets. So raising money, which is what you do 
at the beginning of your producing career, that's a big part of what you do. It was much easier for me and that I already had the connections. I mean, it's not to say that I could raise money, you know, like that, but I, I had people at least ask. And that's sometimes hard to put together. And so, and you know, the fundraising I do is all from pretty much all from individuals. So I went to Columbia, I quit my job. I, uh, Love, love, loved being at Columbia. And uh, in my second year, someone introduced me to a producer and they said, do you want to be a producer? And I actually said, well, I can't be a producer. You know, I'm, I'm in grad school. And this woman said to me, why not? And I had no answer. I just went, um, uh, and it was one of those like, oh, why not? Hmm. Okay, because there are certain producers. I mean, the way it works on Broadway, there's lead producers who do the lion's share of the work. And then there are what we now call co-producers who basically raise money and they can bring another skill set, but they're one of the main functions of the co-producer is to help raise money. And as I said, it was a little easier for me to put that together. So my, this was in my second year at Columbia. I was a, um, a co-producer on Raisin in the Sun starring Sean Combs, Felicia Rashad, Audrey McDonald, which was a crazy way to start. All of a sudden we were nominated for a Tony and it took me a long time to realize, oh, I was nominated for a Tony. It wasn't just the show. The show was, but I also was. And I got to go to the Tony Awards, which was incredible. And, you know, it sort of launched me. And then it's very much a business of relationships. And so out of that show, I met people and they introduced me to this person and that person. And then the next year I had two more shows that I was a part of on Broadway. So I was very fortunate. The pieces felt, but as I said, I didn't set out to be a producer, but I realized the more I do it, all the different hats I've worn in my life really make me well positioned to be a producer because I have the finance background and I really have a good head for numbers. I have the theater background. You know, I was a performer for many years. I directed shows. I mean, I really understand when I ask an actor to go out on the road. I know what that means to go out on the road when I or eight shows a week. I just haven't, I know a lot of that. I'm not as good at set designing or anything like that, but I'm very good at the basic overall art. And then also because I'm a, a parent and a mom, a lot of being a producer is you're the parent of the organization and you need to know when you can say, oh, you, you need a hug. Can I give you a hug? And when you could say, no, you can't do that. I can't give you that day off. You know, you have to have both. You know, you can't have yeah. a sleepover. You can't all those things the mom has to say. No, you can't have chocolate for dinner. You know, you, you start doing that as a producer. So back when this, this producer lady, I'm assuming it was a woman. I don't know why call me crazy. Maybe you said that it was a woman and it's not me assuming, but when she was like, Hey, you should be a producer. You would, do you want to be a producer? What did that word as you could define it back then? What did that mean to you? Like, how would you have defined it back then? And how has that definition evolved? I mean, I know you just touched on it a little bit with all the different things that one does as a producer, but yeah, speak on that a little bit. This was just taking on the responsibility for the production, even though I was only taking on a responsibility of the small amount. I think that's what, when she said that, I think that's where I went to like, well, I'm not ready. I'm not cooked yet. I'm still in school, you know, when she said, but why? And so I'm suddenly, I thought, well, I, I guess I could do that. You know, I don't know. I can't really answer exactly, but I think that was my sense that I, I hadn't finished learning what I needed to learn. I needed to learn it before I moved forward, which was wrong. And the same thing happened when I made the transition from co-producer to lead producer, I kept waiting and waiting and people kept saying when, to me, when are you going to do your own show? And I kept saying, well, I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready yet. Until finally, and I think I would just, I don't know whether I felt like I needed to 
get a certain amount of knowledge. I don't know. I just, I wanted to feel like I was ready to take that step and the ownership of the show and the responsibility and it's legal responsibility, but also it's personal responsibility. You feel responsible and you, you know, I, with, I'm, all these people are hired because of me. Yeah. When did you actually feel ready? And does one ever truly feel ready? I think that's like, yes, of course, there's like the intellectual aspect of being ready. Like like you said, all the responsibilities that come with that. But then on the emotional side, at least in my side of the business, you know, oftentimes no one's giving you a handout and saying, hey, you should come over and do this. You have to sort of be like, I'm here and I'm doing this and kind of figuring it out as you go because most people aren't ready. So how did you navigate that? Eventually, I found a show that I loved. I think it was something like instinctive and I know how to I know how to market this show. I know how to sell this show. And I felt confident. And since then I've, you know, the more you do it and certainly the more if you do it and you're successful, it gives you more confidence to do it again and then it gives you more confidence to do it again. But and maybe this is a, a woman thing, but I I think about it a lot like, oh, am I able to do that? You know, I, I think there's a lot of, I shouldn't say it's just men, but there's a lot of people who are just like, well, of course I can do that. And I, I think it's interesting because that is a very masculine quality I'll say. And there's a lot of studies that show that statistically speaking, men will jump for opportunities or ask for a promotion or go for the next thing when they're like actually at 30% ready, but they feel like they're at a hundred, right? Yet women will be at like 90 and be like, no, no, I gotta, there's still a gap before I can jump to the next thing. And it's deeper issue, of course, of how we were, we're taught and how we have to like work harder just to be at the status quo, really get to get status quo. And so, yeah, it's an interesting thing that, again, having done so many of these conversations now predominantly with women, like at least statistically from this podcast, I can say that this is absolutely something that a lot of women sort of echo back to me, which I find interesting. And and a lot of the listeners often ask me similar questions of like, oh, when do I know that I'll be ready for this? Or how do I know that I'm ready for that? And it's such a complicated question to answer because it is a path with no roadmap, you know, any of producing really is really choose your own adventure. And every person's journey is so singular and it's so singularly that person's. And you have to just be really good at trusting your own instincts, which sometimes women have to go on a much longer journey to actually arrive to just having trusted their instinct all along of when they're actually ready, right, to elevate to the next thing, to the next challenge um, versus what an industry may be telling them they're ready for. So I agree completely. I love the idea that it's choose your own adventure. I mean, it's definitely a more fun way to look at it, right? I think like so many, there's so many interesting career paths and different ways that people got on the the hamster wheel. So it's interesting, um, yeah, to just reflect that because it is about starting where you are. You know, I think with your story, if you had said, yeah, there's this theater all around me, but I really want to go do film. Like it would have been possible, but it would have been such a bigger leap for you potentially because you already were immersed in this world in one way. Like you said, you already had so many things that when you zoomed out and looked around, so many of the pieces were already there for you to just step into that role, you know? So that's what I always say, you know, just to really lean into what is immediately available to you and see where you can be additive and go from there, like kind of like expand from there. So then your first producing as lead producer on Broadway then was which project? So the first show I was a lead that made it to Broadway was a musical that I adored called Hands on a Hard Body, which unfortunately was not successful. 
but I loved it. It was based on the documentary about a, a group of people in Texas who try to win a truck by keeping their hands on the truck. I thought it was the most beautiful musical. I love that musical, but unfortunately it wasn't successful, but I was, a, I was a lead on that. And then fun home, probably I was the, was the next thing I was a lead on. And what was the biggest shift then from being co-producer to lead producer? Aside from the responsibility, was there a mental shift you had to make? Or what was that journey? No, it's just more fun because you really do the oh, That's good. <laughs> you know, you do to make the decisions. You get to have input. I mean, I was very, very fortunate. Early in my career, I was on some very small co-producing teams. Nowadays, they tend to be bigger and it's just, you can't have 50 people get involved in making decisions about advertising. But early in my career, I was on several shows where it was just three or four producers. And even though I wasn't a lead, I got to be in the room where decisions were made, even if I wasn't making the decisions. So I did have some really, really great experiences as a co-producer. But ultimately, it just got to be more fun when I was the one, even if I would have partners on the show that like, I love things like picking what color the t-shirts are. (laughs) The nice thing about being a producer is every producer sets up their business the way they want to set it up. So you can do all the work. You can do some of the work. You can say, I never want to go to auditions. Or you could say, I want to go to every single audition. You can, you know, or something in between. You really decide what aspects interest you and what aspects you think you're good at. I mean, there are definitely things I think I'm really good at. And like I said, tech stuff, when they say to me, you know, what about this light equipment? I like, I have to let somebody else do that. That is just not. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or how are we going to do the sound on this show? Like, I don't know anything about speakers, but if we're discussing what star we should use or between these two actors, who has the right essence? Like, I'm really happy to be a part of those conversations. I tend to be involved in the conversations that have more of a financial impact. But on a lot of the shows, like on Strange Loop, I was on that show for a lot of years and I was very involved in discussions about the story and the dramaturgy. And and it wasn't just the writer and the director, which sometimes it is. I, you know, I was part of the group. I wasn't only me, but I'd be at the conversations. and, And I love being able to say to my writer a question, what are you trying to say here? And they'll say, I'm trying to say, she's blonde. And I'll say, but I'm not getting that. She's wearing a brunette wig. I'm, I'm sort of confused. Like, so you can raise the, it's very, that was a simplistic example, but you get to be in this conversation. And I, I got to really, really dig in, especially on Strange Loop, because I was involved for so long and dig in with the writer and get to know them and get to know and, and being true to their vision. You know, I always want to protect their vision and do what they want. But I also want to say, this is what you want. I'm not getting that. I'm losing this here, or or I'm not seeing that there. Or um, why is this dance number here? It feels funny that they're dancing there. And then they can justify it to me, or they can make it work that the person is dancing there. That's why I like being a lead producer, because you're just really involved. And you can get your hands as dirty as, as you want to get them. Yeah, it sounds like you, it's like an active dialogue, right? And instead of like similar to what I would akin it to being an independent film producer and you're developing material with with a writer-director, because it's very similar. You know, you get to ask the questions that guide or warrant whatever the vision is and the direction that the writer or director wants it to go. But like you said, is it perhaps not quite landing? So it's almost like you're holding up a mirror and be like, is this 
what you intended because this is what we're getting, you know? And that person can go, oh, actually, no, that that isn't working. I see it, right? And that's if you have a healthy working relationship. Not all relationships are created equal. And, you know, when you hear creative differences, that typically is a very nice version of what people are talking about or referring to. The other nice thing about being the producer is I'm not in the room all the time, in the, you know, in the rehearsal the writer's there, the director's there, the choreographer's there, the musical director's there. I, and so in a way, I'm an objective eye. As I enter after however, you know, a week or two days or however long I haven't been in there. And so I can see it, you know, when they're in there all the time, they can't necessarily see fresh eyes. Right. They're too close to it. You have to be able to zoom out. Yeah. It's such an important perspective um, that, yeah, exactly like a producer can provide is just that zooming out of certain things that sometimes true artists, which is why we love them, can get sometimes super focused on one thing that is not as important. And you're constantly there to be like, let's step it back a bit and really make sure we're aligned and where, where it's headed. At least that's what I think all the good producers do in, in whatever field or aspect of the industry they're in. But will you tell the story that you shared with me when I met you just about how Strange Loop came into your life and and also to share with the listeners just how Broadway gets developed, how a show gets developed and how much work as many great things, you know, goes on behind the scenes before it ever even makes it to Broadway. The stories you told me was really eye-opening because we're so siloed and businesses are always so like mystical and romantic. And you're like, you know, it's like you got to go behind the curtain to be like, wait, how does this actually work? So, so yes, if you don't mind telling us that whole story. The first thing I'll say when you say how long it takes, Michael R. Jackson, who wrote the show, it took him 18 years. My God, I didn't know that. It was not the show it is today, but he wrote a monologue about his life. And then someone said, you shouldn't write a song. And then, you know, and then it, so it, it evolved. I came along in 2016. I had been invited to a reading. Several people invited me, but mainly Michael's agent. And I rarely ever go to a reading where I don't know somebody involved. It's just, I get invited to too many. There's no way to pick and choose. But at the same time, I've been hearing a lot of people say to me, oh, Michael R. Jackson, he's great. You should get to know this composer, Michael R. Jackson. And it ended up being, it was the Friday after Trump was elected. I think I told you this part, didn't I? Yeah, this is why I love it. (laughs) All of New York was just despondent. Yeah. We were all just walking around in a haze. And I said, well, okay, I'll go to this reading. And I went to the reading and, you know, we're all just sitting there with this feeling the malaise and the despair and out walked these seven black performers. And I was just struck by that because we don't usually see that in this day and age. We did when I was a kid in the 1970s, there were a lot of black casts on Broadway, many, many, many shows. But for some reason, And I think someone should look into this and see if they could study it and figure it out. We don't see that very often. So I saw these seven Black performers, including at front and center, the lead was a large, chubby man, which again, you don't see that very often. And then the show started and the first number began and they said, Usher, 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 Usher. And I just like kind of jumped up and, and, you know, I sat up like, I've never heard this before. And I loved the show. And I like to say, you know, my heart was pounding the whole time partly because it was so great. It was so funny. It was so brilliant. And partly because it was so terrifying. I mean, the things that Michael talks about, some of his lived experience, I mean, he calls it a self-referential musical, not an autobiographical musical. So it refers to his life. But many of the experiences that Michael went through 
as he was growing up, because it's set when the character Usher is 25 and about to turn 26, Michael's now in his early 40s. A lot of those experiences were based on real things that he went through. And he he just has conversations about things I didn't know about being black, being gay, being black and gay, you know, trying to date. And the other thing I loved about this show, which is very similar to Fun Home, my other musical, is that Usher's life circumstances are so different from mine, you know, but yet I identify with so much of his experience. Like he's working a dead end job. I had plenty of dead end jobs when I was a kid. He just wants his mom to understand him, understand him and his career choices. He just wants to find someone to love him. He wants all the things that we all want. He wants a career. He wants all of the things that every human being wants but he lives in a different world than I live in. So it's to me, Michael likes to say that Strange Loop is either a window or a mirror. For me, it's a window into a world I don't know. Other people come to the show and it's a mirror of their life. And I'd venture to say there are probably some people who have part window, part mirror, you know, but it's just a really interesting way to look at it. For me, it's very much a window and I've learned so much from him of what it's like to walk in his shoes or at least what I think it's like to walk in his shoes, you know? his experience of it and the way he conveys it. It's just, anyway, I hope that was what I told you. when we met. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. And then some, thank you. A few bonuses in there, new things I hadn't heard, but no, it, it's fantastic. And look, you know, I think like it's such a touching show. And one of the things I really love is that there's an ensemble, but the ensemble all are very active in the world and get to play these different characters and have their moment to really be front and center. It's not like oftentimes truly ensembles are there to just support the leads. And I really felt like everybody got to have their moment. You walk away just being so impressed by these brilliant actors and performers that are in front of you, bringing you this story in such a raw, authentic way. And it makes you uncomfortable in all the ways that I think it should. It went for the people that are uh, having the window, getting to peek inside the window, right? But it, it is such a reminder of our humanity and where we have so much more commonality than differences, right? And I feel like that's the power of good stories. It just reminds us that Somebody can look very different from you, but we all have the same things that we want deep down and the similar struggles. And I just think it really achieved that in such a profound and uniquely artistic way, like to your point that I've never seen anything like it or since and just excited for hopefully a tour soon and for more people to get to experience it. Since you began your career, you've had this incredible taste somehow. I don't know what you would attribute to that where you just really get to select shows that go on to win win awards, but also be beloved and make impact. People often ask this question about taste. Like, how do you find your taste? How do you refine it? How do you develop that taste? What has that been like for you? Well, you know, I've been going to Broadway shows since I was a little kid for years and years and years and years and years. So I think I know what I like and what I found as a producer is there are other people who will buy tickets to things I like. The things that I personally, because I, I produce things that I personally, that personally engage me. There's, there can be many different reasons why. Um, usually there's some element of, there's some humanity that I, that I want to know or someone I really identify with or a, a situation I, I see myself in or something. It's, it's very, it, to me, it ha- I want to see real people on stage, even if they're living in a heightened reality. And I also like to see things that are theatrical that you only can see in a theater. For example, I did this two-actor 
murder mystery musical comedy where one played one role and one played all the other roles, 40 roles, and they both played the piano. That doesn't work on film. You know, it's in the theater, watching them live and watching somebody flip into different roles. And it also happened to be really smart and really funny. So there was, of course, I, I loved that show. So to me, it's it, everything I've produced has a theatricality about it as well. But I think the biggest lesson that I've learned and the longer I do it, the more I see it. If I like it, there are people who they do, audience members also seem to like it. Not all, obviously, but enough that it, I can make a go of it. Yeah, I think that's like the difference between making more commercial Broadway, which I know we talked about, and those shows are out there, the more spectacle shows that a lot of tourists come out to see those things. They maybe don't want to be challenged or to be confronted with some of these questions and experiences. They just want to disappear into great song and dance. And there's nothing wrong with that. But there is a certain person. It's I think it's akin to, yeah, like the indie filmmaker or the Marvel films, right? Star Wars, the big franchisable Hollywood films that all have their place in the ecosystem, but you have to decide for yourself like what kinds of stories really move you. And, and that's the what I always harp on to people who listen and are figuring their paths out is because, you know, all of it is so hard and all of it takes so long and you only get the one life as far as we know. So really making sure that you're investing in projects that you have that personal connection with that give you some sense of joy because otherwise what is the thing that you're building i do understand that at certain points in your career especially when you start maybe you're not as fortunate having to have the pick of the litter you do get to just do the best work with what's in front of you but at a certain point you have to create boundaries you have to figure out who it is you want to be what are the kinds of stories you want to tell and who are the kinds of people that you want to collaborate with i think I often see young people coming up just being like, well, I just need a producer. I just need a, it's like, there's no soul there. There's a desperation to just find a piece of the puzzle they think is going to help them get further along. But what a lot of times people don't realize is taking the time to really figure out your voice and who you are and what you want to say, then finding the people that vibe at that frequency, as I like to say, is a better use of your time. It may feel slower in the beginning, but it's actually going to get you further toward where you actually want to go versus getting lost in the madness of it all. Cause it's a lot and it can be, and it's more now more than ever with, you know, how the internet and streamers have changed how we consume content. So bit of a tangent there on my part, uh, but, but an important one, you know, um, and also the idea of mentorship, just to shift gears for a minute, what was that like for you coming up? Do you feel like there were mentors that you had to lean on? How did those relationships evolve for you? Yeah, so initially some of it was professors that I had a company because all the professors are, um, pretty much all of them are working professionals. So that was really helpful, especially, you know, I mean, I was theoretically getting a degree in producing, but there are so many questions that come up when you're doing your first show and raising money and handing out documentation and, you know, just figuring out the logistics of all that is a lot. So that was really, really helpful. And then I was very fortunate, as I said, I was on some small producing teams in the beginning and I had a couple of lead producers who were incredibly generous with their time and were very, very, very helpful. And I mean, I, I would say, I think that I feel like the industry is, Everyone is always helpful to people. I mean, I always had people mentor me. Even today, if I have questions, I have friends I can call, you know, fellow producers and say, what do you think about this? I mean, you know, like, for example, I was putting together a videotape. We send out materials to Tony voters and we were putting together sort of what we called our, you know, our last 
last campaign or last contact with the Tony voter. And I sent it to a very close friend who's another producer. And I said, this is what we want to say. Is this video saying it? And he gave me great notes on what was what he would add and what was missing. You know, so I, I feel very fortunate. You know, I've been producing now. So my first show was 2004. So 18 years, I still have people I can reach out to and say, what do you think? What do you, do you like this ad? It's sort of the same as being the outside eye in the rehearsal room. They're my outside eye because they're not, they're not on the show. And I can say, what do you see? What does this look like to you? And they can tell me and I'm like, okay, that works. I like that. Or, oh, I'm missing that. Or they'll call me up and say, just so you know, all the Tony voters such and such has come out and I haven't gotten yours yet. And then I can look into it and find out why. Like I have a lot of, there's just people are, re- they're really supportive. I do think people in the industry were very, very supportive of Strange Loop because they knew it's unusual. We need producers to take risks and it's, it's a risky enough business. So to add a risk on top of risk, it's nice to feel that the industry is supporting you in that way. For producers who do the, the advice question, you know, for people listening who want to produce theater, who have dreams of producing on Broadway and want to do pieces of work that are more riskier, like what Strange Loop has done, what advice and guidance do you have for those people? Like, how do they get started? How do they find material? That's another question that is... Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Hopefully they have a network of friends and colleagues that they're are also, you know, writers or friends of people who want to be producers and they can all start to, you know, there's no set path for being a producer. Just like I said, you don't need to go to grad school. You can just go out and start producing and in smaller venues, festivals, and just get there and just learn it by doing it. The other really great way to get into being a producer is to work for a producer or work for a general manager and try to get a job where you're in the room where the decisions are being made, because that's how you're going to learn. If you're sitting in an ad meeting and you hear them discuss, do we want to advertise in the New York Times? Do we want to take out a TV commercial? Do we want to, what are we doing on social? You know, because a lot of it is, I'm not creating any of that, that, advertising the social, but I'm still leading the team. So I'm constantly posing questions. You know, we we have strategy sessions and I'm saying, okay, I have this idea. What if we did a campaign of this? And then they'll take it back and come up with ideas for me, but I'm the one who's coming, who's sort of triggering that. I mean, it's not quite often the press will come, they will come in with ideas, but a lot of the responsibility of it is on me to keep pushing the team forward. And I think if you're working in that environment, you see what that is. You know, I worked with some great producers who would say, well, what about X and what about this? And maybe we need to do an event for, you know, for Fun Home, I mean, um, for Strange Loop, you know, there's a strong LGBTQ component. So what are LGBTQ organizations we can work with? Somebody dig in and find them and reach out to them and to the show. So I think that for a producer, I think both paths of actually producing and working for a producer are really good, both really good paths to start out. Yeah. It's like apprenticeship, but also you have to be out there just doing the thing, figuring it out for yourself, because that's the way you're going to learn, like we talked about earlier, the kind of producer you are, the kind of producer you want to be, and perhaps what you thought a producer was in the reality of what it is to actually be a producer, right? It's a lot of, like I said, romanticism and mysticism with what producers do. And a big point of the show is to not just to dissuade anybody from it, but just inform them of the realities of what it means to do this work. I think there's a lot of uh, praise and we just a lot of glamour that people perceive to exist around what producers do. And that sometimes is the case. It's like 
3% of the time that is the case. You get to have fancy moments in your career, but most of it is not that. And if you're chasing that, you may be chasing the wrong thing. It may not be what you thought. So, you know, just a word of caution to anyone who is not aware. And from what I understand, I don't know, I mean, I've never worked in film. In a way, the studio, the role of the studio, we do too. You create the work, but then they take it and sell it, right? We create the work. I mean, the artists create it, but I'm involved in the creation. And then I'm involved in the marketing and the set. I'm involved in all the strategy. I'm involved in all of that. So it is a very different job because I, I in essence, am the studio. Right. Yeah. And I think on the independent side, you would have a similar like parallel with like an, if there's an independent financier, right, that's come in. So it's almost like in our world, basically, whoever pays for the thing to get made, who's ever taking the actual financial risk really gets to have a lot of say in everything that comes after because it's in their best interest to get a return on that investment. And if you are a producer who gets to elevate yourself and be known in the space And there's a few of those producers that really get to be involved and super hands-on with marketing and a lot of these conversations. But oftentimes, especially when you're starting, like that is not the case. I mean, I've had friends who get very upset because they see the poster that Amazon has for their documentary. And they're like, this is not at all what the show is, but we can't say anything. We have to just be okay with it, right? And so there's a lot of nuances to that in in our world. So odd to me. I mean, I had a friend who to live near and she was a, a movie producer and we would have so different such different experiences because she was on set every minute of the day when they were filming and then would go you know here and not be, not control the marketing or the distribution or anything I mean I don't totally control it because I have to get a theater there are some things that aren't in my control but I'm leading the charge for all of them yeah but it's also I think because you know with the theater like there's one place where people can see that show and have that experience. It's one physical location, right? When you're talking about a film, distributors have to think about the entire world and different strategies. And there's so many things that I think perhaps are at play that impact the creative or whatever decisions and influence or impact that a producer can have when it comes to strategy or marketing materials. I always found it fascinating that there's sometimes completely different posters for the same movie in different markets. Especially like being from Brazil, like when every time I've seen the same movie and how it's advertised there, even how they translate the title of certain projects, it's really fascinating. And I mean, speaking on the theatrical model, which of course is slowly dying, but for a long time, it one could say those guys really knew what actually worked because they had enough, you know, history to back up with the numbers. But nowadays, the model has changed so much that I would be curious if maybe having producers get back to being involved and being that creative through line, wouldn't that actually be more helpful because you're now competing for eyeballs way more than you ever have before? I don't know. It's a question for any industry peeps listening who have the answer. Feel free to uh, come back to me with that. But I wanted to talk a little bit about the Sweet Factory Fellowship that you have in reading about this. You know, it's really great to see that there's, you're always supporting early career professionals in the theater space. And from what I understand, this fellowship offers employment, educational and financial opportunities um, to high school students, especially. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that, especially if we do have listeners who maybe are earlier in their career and are based in New York already. And it's something maybe they could be considered for. Yeah, I must say, I, I don't run that program. I'm just a oh, okay. of that program. Nina Esman, who 
works in our, our office used to be a Tootsie Roll factory. I don't know if we showed you the pictures when you were there. Oh, I didn't know that. How cool. The building was called the Sweet Factories. So that's why we call it the ah, Sweet Factory. Huh? It all comes together. <laughs> and Nina has a connection with, it's a high school theater program. So she partners with them. Um, and we had our first two fellows come in last year. They were, they were amazing. One was a junior, one was a senior. And they came throughout the entire year and worked. I think the the senior has now graduated. I don't know. And I guess we're going to be starting up again. I have to ask her if we're starting up again. So I must say, I, I was involved in it in that I supported it. I was really excited to do it. And I met with these interns when they were in our office, but I'm, I was much more involved in, um, in order in, in New York state has a fellowship requirement for New York city grant. I think it's a New York city grant. There's a tax rebate that each production can apply for. And part of the uh, requirements are a fellowship program. So we did hire a fellow on Strange Loop for six months. We had the best fellow who we adored. And then she finished her six months and we lost her because she got another job. But we love, love, loved her. And um, so, yeah, I do do, I'm very involved in a lot of those things. I really believe a lot. I think it became clear during the pandemic and after the social reckoning and, and the unfortunate situation, it was a very sad situation with George Floyd, it became clear that our industry really needed to do much more to bring in people and to support people. I've always been involved in a group, in a program called Rising Stars from the Broadway League. And what that is, is a, I think it's like a 14-week training program. People, league members who have employees who they consider rising stars can nominate them. And we select six or seven a year and producers and presenters and booking agents, we, they meet once a week and they're allowed to take time off from work to go do this. And it's to teach them all sorts of aspects of the business. So that's a wonderful program. So I do, I have been involved in many of these programs, some directly and some a little more indirect. Yeah, no, that's amazing. I think that's obviously been a focus of mine always is to think, how do we help bring women and more people of color into our industries, into the pipeline, especially from a production standpoint? I feel like oftentimes... Um, I also started out as an actor. Theater was my first love. And it's a similar thing. Like I I didn't know what a producer did or what that was. And perhaps if I had been given more insight into that, my path would have unfolded differently. Perhaps not. I'm not mad at how the path has unfolded. I think being an artist first, having a heart for for its story and also having all of the business and logistics now that I have in my brain actually makes me a really well-rounded producer because I understand artists and I understand creatives because I know that process similar to what you were saying. You know what it's like to do eight shows a week, right? There's a different energy that you bring to certain conversations of sensitivity. But yeah, I think there's such a lack of visibility as to all the different cool opportunities that can exist. I think especially for people in the theater who like love, say, stage managing, like I stage managed in high school uh, for my shows, you know, and and I didn't know that there was a potential linear path for that in film or in theater, really. So I think the more insight we can give and help uplift, that is like, to me, the, the point of it all, frankly, and what gets me really motivated to help uh, be a part of the solution so we can start bringing more people from earlier ages into the business. Because otherwise, how do you incubate people who want to produce to eventually become the lead producers of their own shows who can go fundraise. Like it has to start at a younger age and bringing those people up through the pipeline. So I'm glad that there's a focus on you guys' end as well to do that. It's really, really exciting to hear. Another aspect of it is to just bring kids to come see shows. 
Broadway League has a program called, a wonderful program called Broadway Bridges. And the goal is to have every 10th grader in New York City public school see a Broadway show before they graduate. And right now, I mean, every year they add more and more kids to come to do this program and it's subsidized. So the kids only, they only have to pay $10 a ticket. And I feel like if a hundred kids go to see a show, at least one is going to say, I want to come back. That's wonderful because that's how we're going to build this love of theater in if the, these kids can come see it. And then maybe they, they go to college and they can learn that there are, you know, it's not just performing or, I mean, we actually have some programs we're trying to put in place to show them backstage, to give them an idea that there, there are lots of careers you can do in theater. You know, you don't have to be on stage. You don't just have to go to movie star. Yes, exactly. Similarly, in the film business, we are in desperate need of new energy, new blood of people who want to actually do the behind the scenes work and be department heads and really be able to support and nurture the wonderful um, uprising that we're having of, you know, creators of color. It's fantastic, but it's only fantastic if it's in equal pairing with the behind the scenes and with all the collaborators to that process. So. Shifting gears a little bit, I want to talk a little bit about you. You know, one of the things that for me, this show has become is almost like free therapy, uh, which, you know, just something I, I have always found value in, you know, really understanding the lifestyle, right, of what it takes to live this, what it takes to do this, especially as a woman, as a mom, like you talked about having to make shifts in your in your your own ambitions early on because of the times, you know, you had to choose a path and you were able to still get back on in your own timing and that's your journey. But, but, you know, sort of navigating the ups and downs of the business of theater. And I I don't know too much about the cycles of that, but I'll share that for me, one of the things I talk a lot about is mental health, the importance of self-care, the endurance that is required to really navigate this business, to form the right relationships, to eventually get to the kind of place where you've built enough of a career that you can look back 10, 15 years later and say, okay, I have arrived because that's kind of how long it takes. But in that journey, one thing that was never clear to me is how much of yourself, you have to pour into the work, especially when you're starting out. And for me, I struggled a lot with my own self-worth oftentimes if I wasn't working because I always freelance. And so there was a lot of my own worth as an individual being tied up in a title or the jobs I was getting or not getting. And so there were a lot of peaks and valleys in my journey and a lot of valleys of questioning a lot of my decisions and just feeling really insecure, frankly, about the choices I was making because sometimes the journey can be so solo and sometimes you, production specifically, which is where I spent most of my time, you will go deep and hard for six months and then you wake up and you're like, oh my God, what has just happened in my life? Just lost six months of my life to, or not lost, gave to this aspect of my life. So finding that balance, finding that ability to withstand challenges and get through it to get to the other side when you're in your valleys. So a very long-winded way for me to get to my question, which is to share, you know, to ask when you have been in these like valleys of your career, how have you navigated those? And if there's a, a, an experience that you feel like you'd want to share as an example of a challenge and how you overcame it to sustain. When you say valleys of your career, yeah, like the lulls of it, right? Like I imagine theater is similar to film where the highs are highs, but the lows can also be very low. And there's a lot of stillness sometimes. There's there's a lot of grief sometimes with loss of projects and loss of relationships. And it's just a challenging business. And I think I move through those times. I just kind of intentionally move through them pretty quickly. I can't really 
this one's sort of a hard one for me because I like when a show closes before, like I like to say before it's time, it's very sad, but I'm, I'm usually very realistic and, you know, the numbers aren't there. The ticket buyers aren't buying. It's time. It's time to go. I tend to be the kind of person that looks on the bright side. I mean, the worst thing, the really sad thing was that when we did Strange Loop off Broadway in 2019 and all the Broadway theaters were booked for the following season and I didn't get a theater. And I thought that was the, so it was so devastating. I have to wait a whole year. What am I going to do? And then the pandemic hit and I was so grateful because otherwise I would have been shut down. So I tend to look at the positive side of it. You know, I tend not, I don't want to mean to say that I choose to like not live in the Valley to just be in the Valley. <laughs> it's just not my personality. I tend to look always, always look on the bright side of life. I don't know. That's just kind of the kind of person I am. Yeah, no, I mean, and I wonder if you've always been that way or if you had uh, your own journey to find yourself into this space that sounds very healthy and balanced. And I'm, you know, envious in a way, but, you know, I think for maybe in the theater space is also a little different, but I know so many people that I've had on the show and, and people that DM me privately speak to having similar challenges and being curious to how, especially women, like navigate the blows and the setbacks that, you know, you're constantly getting knocked down and the rejection isn't just for the talents, it's for everybody, it's constant. And how do you keep showing up enthusiastically, optimistically to do the work that is so hard, right? I think the parts that are frustrating to me about the industry are the part, the things that I don't control. I don't control when you get a theater. That's up to the theater owners. I don't control what the critics say about a show. You just have to put it out there and say, this is my show. I love this show. It's a beautiful, you work as hard as you can. And then you just have to have hope that you get the reviews that give you the, the tools to move forward. And it's devastating. When you don't get those reviews, it is. And then you pick up and you move on. The greatest day of all is when a theater owner calls and says, you know, I have a theater for you. Because you just, there are no, there are many, 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 many more shows than there are theaters. But, you know, the flip side is it's when they say, we don't have anything for you next season. It's just like, oh, because you don't control it. You just have to get in line, right? And there's nothing you can do, right? It's you make your case to them. You keep making your case to them you know, and you cross your fingers and hope someday they'll call, but you, you don't know if they will. That's hard. So I would say that is my valley is the <laughs> things that I, I just don't control. I, I don't feel that the same way. I mean, I don't control ticket buyers, obviously, but I don't feel quite the same way because I at least control, I'm speaking directly to them with the advertising and I'm going to make my best case and I'm going to put, do everything I can to bring in the audiences that I think will really love the, the show and, you know, sometimes I'm right and sometimes I'm wrong, but I at least, I at least can control something as opposed to doing your opening night show and sitting there and feeling like it's not working. It's not working. Oh my God, what are these critics going to say, you know, or your press, they come to press nights. So I would say that for me, the value, the, the hard parts are the things that are just, just, I have no control over. Yeah. How have you found the, the work-life balance? I mean, it seems like your kids were maybe already a little bit older when you went out and you already had maybe already created a, a system for yourself that worked, but was that a, a period of challenging transition for you? I kept my involvement in theater to somewhat of a minimum until they were in college. I, I didn't do it really full out until they were in college because I wanted to be there. 
you know, they were awake from 7 a.m. to 7.20. And then they'd go out to high school. And I didn't want to miss those 20 minutes. But if I was out till, you know, one in the morning, that was hard. That was tiring. So my kids love theater. They're enthusiastic audience members. My younger son is an actor. So it was very much a part of the family business. And it still is to this day. But, you know, I definitely did try to keep it to more part-time just so I could be with them. And I would go when they were in high school because I'm a Tony voter, so I need to see every show that opens each season. And I would take them on the weekends with me. Yeah. You know, which was great, great joy. Uh, I still, I wish I could still take them with me, but they're grown. So I definitely did. I did intentionally keep it more controlled just because, you know, you want to have dinner with them, you know, and especially when they're in high school, they're not around a whole lot. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything that you're working on next? What's up after Strange Loop? I do have a new play that is opening on Broadway next spring starring Sean Hayes from Will and Grace. Oh my gosh. And the Smartless podcast. And uh, Sean is going to star in a play called Goodnight Oscar by Doug, Pulitzer Prize winning Doug Wright. And we did it at the theater last spring and it's fantastic. Sean is just revelatory. It's like no other Sean you've ever seen. Please come see it. It's brilliant. It's a really funny. It's about a man named Oscar Levant. I don't know if you know who he was. He was a Hollywood officer and wit, a concert pianist. He was the first person who ever went on. This is true. He was the first person who ever went on live TV on shows like the Jack Parr show and talked about mental illness and electroshock therapy. And he was the person who went out and said what you were not supposed to say on TV. And it's great. It's just a really terrific, terrific play. So we're very excited. It opens on Broadway's Alaska Theater. We start previews in early April and open at the end of April. Okay. I will be coming out. I will be sure to be there for sure. That is very exciting. There you are again with another excellent piece of taste and, and quality work that you're creating. It's very exciting. I'm excited for you. Lisa Peterson is directing it. I didn't mention Lisa. Amazing. Lisa Peterson. Cool. Yes. We'll make sure. Um, I don't know if you have any links to anything yet, but whenever you do, feel free to share it with me and I can post it on social media or I have a blog post I do about each guest. So I can also include anything you want on there. So we're reaching the end of our time together. And before we move on to the very fun, quick lightning round, I want to leave on this question for you. Um, what is the legacy that you hope to leave behind with all the great work that you have been doing and will continue to do? I would say let's keep pushing the boundaries of what is musical theater. Probably doesn't apply as much to plays, but certainly to musicals. Don't limit. Let's not limit what we think is a musical or what is the subject for a musical or who should, what stories are appropriate for a musical. Because we've proven time and time again that there is an audience who wants to see you know, the rents, the next to normals, the, the unusual, there, there is an audience for that. Hades Town, a band's visit, fun home, many of mine next to normal, many of mine fit that category. So I feel like we as an industry, let's all just keep, keep saying to audiences, yes, we hear you. You do want to see unusual things. Let's do the traditional, like you said, you know, the big touristy musicals. Great. Do those. The family musicals do those, but let's not limit ourselves. Let's keep doing it. I love that. Well, so we are moving on to the lightning round. So these are five fun little questions just to take us out. So the first question is, what's a song that teleports you to a happy place? My White Knight from Music Man. What is the latest piece of art that moved you? It can be a book, a film, a TV show, anything. Oh, gosh. Well, I'm really loving reading Mary Rogers Shy, you know, Richard Rogers' daughter, her uh, fascinating uh, memoir about her career and her parents. Yeah. Okay, cool. 
Fill in the blank. When I'm overworked, blank helps ease the stress. Glass of wine. What kind of wine? <laughs> uh, Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand. Okay, perfect. My kind of lady. That was probably the easiest question you asked me all day. <laughs> I will say that most producers answer wine to this question. That's why I'm looking for a wine sponsor. It's a true story. Uh, okay. This is a good one that I love. What is one of the most worthwhile investments that you've ever made? And it does not have to be financial. My children. Yeah. I figured you'd say that. I don't know. What else is an investment? Absolutely. Absolutely. Ken. My children are now at the dividend as I have a grandson. Oh, my goodness. So investment in the children is going on and on. That's amazing. Congratulations. And I have a daughter-in-law. Like, it just keeps going and getting better and better. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, this is the final question. And, you know, coming up, I loved the actor studio. I'm sure you did as well. I just have a feeling. Um, so I, I like to borrow this question from inside the actor studio, which is inspired by the famed French journalist Bernard Pivot. And this is the question that he would end his show famously with, which is, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Come on in. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's a good enough answer. <laughs> It's a great answer. It's your answer. So it's perfect. Nice to see you. <laughs> nice to see you. It feels very on brand for your vibrant, luminous personality. Very positive, lovely lady. It's awesome. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on the show and, and spending this time um, sharing a bit of your story with me and the listeners. And I'm happy to be a conduit for it. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in and doing this life thing with me. If you like the show, please don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. I'm at Carolina Gropa. The show's at Angle on Producers. And I'll see you next week. Beijos. <laughs>